Yo, what's up? This your boy Trey Chaney, better known as Poop from the HBO series The Wire. And right now you are listening to the Rewired Podcast, celebrating 20 years of The Wire. And make sure y'all check me and my brother J.D. Williams out, a.k.a. Bodie, November 15th for The Wire for Life Tour at the Brooklyn Bowl in Las Vegas. And be sure to check out the video, The Wire 20-Year Anniversary Tribute. Let's get it. Hello, welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly, and Bailey's not with us today, but we are welcoming two guests. We have Craig and Brad Schlesinger. Craig? Hey, it's great to be back. I've got my younger brother, Brad, with me. And believe it or not, we have a special surprise guest making a cameo, uh, my favorite character from The Wire, your favorite Maryland State Senator, Clay Davis. Clay, thank you for taking the time out of your busy extortion schedule for being here. Uh, the Wire's 20 years old. Can you believe it? And before you go back to shaking down various politicians, developers, and drug dealers, do you have a message out there for the people? I'm talking about the people now who haven't seen The Wire or saw The Wire and didn't like it or even like The Wire, or so they say, but skip over certain seasons? Well, Senator, thanks for joining us. Well said, Senator Davis. Uh, thank you, Greg, for uh, for bringing Clay Davis into this conversation. We love it. Uh, and, uh, of course, he's absolutely right. Um, you know, she applies to a lot. Uh, so, Craig, as people probably remember, Craig, you were with us a couple months ago, and we loved having that conversation. Uh, and now, thank you for your brother, Brad, joining us as well. So, Craig and Brad, go ahead and introduce yourselves. Yeah, um, I'm Craig Schlesinger. I currently work as the Chief Financial Officer for Psych Corporation. That's P-S-Y-C Corporation, or Psych Corp. And uh, among our many assets is Psychedelic Spotlight, our major platform, and uh, we're excited about a lot of the growth that's been going on and some other things that uh, can't wait to talk about with you on the podcast. Awesome, uh, Brad. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm Brad, younger brother of Craig, as previously mentioned. Um, I am on the advisory board um, of Psych, but I'm also a public defender. Uh, which I've been doing for just about over nine years now. Great. Well, this is one of the areas that we're going to touch on for sure is just uh, your perception of the wire uh, working within the field of, of public defense. That's I'm sure you've got some really fascinating perspectives there. Uh, but before we get to that, Brad, we like to ask all of our guests, um, just tell us how you got into the show and uh, kind of when you first watch it and, and why you loved it. Uh, the Wire is an amazing show, of course, that I absolutely missed when it first came on, despite the fact that I was a notorious Sopranos watcher um, in those early 2000s uh, period. I did not watch The Wire for some reason, apparently, that I don't know, but never went ahead and watched it. And uh, I think I first watched it maybe about 10 years ago. Um, I was working in Washington, D.C. while I was in law school. Um, and I was doing some drug policy work. And a lot of my friends who happened to be doing that as well were all from Maryland. Uh, they either went to the University of Maryland or they grew up there. So they were obviously uh, close to Baltimore. And The Wire was something that a lot of them talked about. And I knew I kind of had to watch it, apparently. And uh, so I started watching it. This was about a year or so before I started working as a public defender. Um, so that's when I first started to watch it, and it was the kind of show that I just realized right away just how special it was. And uh, I was lucky that the people that sort of pushed me to watch it, you know, gave me the advice that the show is such such a big sprawl, and it covers such an expanse that you got to just stick through it through the first couple of episodes, which is so important. 
Because I remember sitting there looking at my phone, looking at the watch, wondering how many minutes has gone by in this first or second episode because it just feels like it takes forever because there's such, a, such an expanse of characters and information and stuff you need to know to have that foundation for the whole show. But once you get past those first few episodes, it just takes off and it's just it's just so great. And, you know, as far as my favorite character, uh, like I said, I was a big Sopranos watcher when I was growing up. I used to love the Italian American mafia and Bodhi just reminds me of, you know, like the true gangster, the throwback version uh, out there on the corner. Uh, so Bodhi's my favorite character. He also has some of the funniest lines in the show. Uh, just hilarious guy. Uh, and uh, I love his story arc as well. Um, you kind of know that he him and McNulty are destined to meet up at some point in the future. And then, of course, it happens, and uh, it's it's for all the right reasons, right? Like, Bodhi's the kind of true gangster who wouldn't violate the rules, but for somebody else is out there just really violating the rules. And, you know, Marlo's killing people who don't deserve to be killed for no reason. And so, you know, Bodhi sees that uh, things are just going haywire. He ends up talking to McNulty, and obviously what happens to Bodhi is what happens. But, you know, uh, Bodhi's just a great character. His interactions with uh, Idris Elba, Stringer Bell, some of the best stuff in the show as well. So I got to yeah. give, I gotta give it up. I got to give it up. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a clo close tie because I'm a big fan of uh, all the politicians <laughs> and the major bureaucrats, probably from, from my job experience. I, I find so much humor in those, like Rawls and Burrell, Royce, some of my, uh, some of my favorites in the show. But I got to give it to my main man, Bodhi. Bodhi brought us favorite character. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked about this, this, how hard it is to say goodbye to Bodie at the end, but when you say he reminds you of, like, throwback old school style of um, gangster or, like, the comparison to Mafia, is that because of, like, his loyalty to, like, the Barksdale organization? Or, or what was that that, um, that made that connection for you? So the thing in, for the Italian-American mafia is the code of Omerta, the sort of silence, you know, you don't rat on your family, you know, you get permission from the boss to do whatever, uh, those sorts of things. For Bodhi, it's the game, right? There are these certain rules to the game, the Sunday truce. Um, but at, now and again, whether it's in the Italian-American mafia or, you know, in, in, sort of the game in the wire, there are certain people who come to power, right, who violate those rules. And Bodhi's that sort of throwback gangster who is, you know, adheres to the rules, you know, tries to be, you know, as maybe not to Barksdale, right? Because Bodhi ends up working for Barksdale, but then Avon goes to jail. Then he starts getting the package from Slim, eventually works for Marlowe. So he navigates his way through a whole bunch of different crews. Um, it's kind of like where what I'm saying. Like he's got that like old time a throwback gangster where he can make it through like whatever the conditions are. Um, but also like when he sees that there's some really messed up shit that's going on out there, you know, he's able to sort of see it for what it is um, and keep some level of perspective, right? He's loyal to a point, right? Um, he's loyal to a point where things are going in the direction where it's not so much the game anymore. It's just like Marlowe's just become a murderous psycho. Right. Um, and so that's when he knows like he needs to step up. So. Yeah, he does a lot. He does really well um, in that sort of throwback style, you know, uh, following the rules, navigating through. But, you know, when he sees some, something that's going haywire, he steps in. And if yeah, I could I mean, just, oh, if I could just interject to as a obvious uh, Sopranos and organized crime aficionado, um, perhaps the one that jump started my brother on his whole career. <laughs> um, Bodhi has this sense of, loyalty to the organization at first, kind of like you would see in The Sopranos about you stay within the family and how he looks up to Stringer and how Stringer uses the Wallace situation to bond Bodhi to him inseparably. And then Bodhi feels like he has a rabbi inside of the organization where through which he can rise. Um, and as much as we don't like what happened to Wallace, Bodhi understands just like in the mafia, that if you're not there when the boss calls to see you, you know, you can get clipped just for that. Whereas in the game, if, if you show signs of being scared or frightened, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of liability to the organization. If you're using 
anything that can be used against you, even in The Sopranos. Tony going to a therapist, he's extremely paranoid about it. But, you know, Wallace had a certain disregard for that life, even though he thought he wanted in on it. Bodhi lived that life to the fullest. And when String gave the go-ahead, as Bodhi says to Poot, right, we either step up or step off, and that's the game. And that's very, very similar, because if you want to rise up in the mafia, in order to get your button, you're going to have to pull, you're going to have to push the button on somebody. Right. Like make your bones, right? That's how you get into and the it's, organization. And it's, your, and it's always your best friend that does it. Even McNulty knows it when he's, him and Bodie are having that meat and having those breakfast sandwiches. He tells him, he's like, you're a soldier, Bodie. He says, hell yeah, hell yeah. So even McNulty knows he's, he's that sort of throwback gangster type. And McNulty's respect for the real, you know, true gangsters is, is always something that comes through. Yes. He lives by a certain, um, well, a code, <laughs> I guess, just they to, uh, like, yeah, believe to that line. Gotta yeah, have they didn't code. really respect Marlowe. They, they respected String for the how organized he was. They respected Omar for how clever and tactical and strategic he was. They respected Bodhi for how, I mean, it's a special kind of gangster, whether it's in the Italian-American uh, or, organization or or in Baltimore to be able to go from organization to organization and kind of keep everybody not pissed off at you. It's a hell of a feat. So when Marlo says that he's a rightful hustler, it's very, very true on so many different levels for Bodie's character. Yeah. And so Brad, when you were in uh, Washington DC and uh, getting into the wire during that period of your life, relatively close to Baltimore and we do see some scenes in the show that uh you know when uh either Teresa is up in DC or there's a little bit of um back and forth between those two cities did that change the way that you interpreted the show or had you been down to Baltimore I'm just wondering about your perspective being somewhat local I actually had uh, been to Baltimore um during that period of time once uh to see the guy I was working for, who uh, this guy Eric Sterling is a major um, guy involved in criminal justice and drug policy reform stuff. Um, I was working for him at the time, and he went to give a speech um, to uh, to a group of students at the the law school at the University of Maryland, which is in Baltimore. And that was my first time there. And he kind of took me around, showed me like some sites, some just some areas around Baltimore. And like, it kind of gave me a better perspective and understanding the show. You know, I didn't spend too much time there, but it was kind of enough to sort of get your bearings a little bit to see, you know, what's going on around you um, and to sort of understand the place a little bit more. Uh, Being in Washington, D.C. certainly uh, helps you understand the nature of bureaucracy um, and incompetence um, at the government level. Um, So that really helped. Um, And obviously working in my job (laughs) helps for that, too. Um, but yeah, no, it definitely it definitely helped going to Baltimore because um, I never been before. But uh, it's it's a really cool place. Um, but it just gave me a little bit more of like a little bit more of a perspective and understanding of like what what this show is all about, like what the place is, like what the people are. Like I said, a lot of people that I was working with were from that area, um, so I kind of felt like I had a little bit like a like a insider information about Baltimore. Yeah, well, Bailey and I went on a road trip to Baltimore, and um, one of the best things about it was how like immersive it felt to be in the settings of the wire you know it's it's very accurately depicted of course um the the entire show but uh baltimore as a city um and i hear that you have a great work story did you want to get into that uh craig you tell me when what where you want to go with the story um my brother has a great story uh, in open court, uh, something that'll sound familiar to many a Wire fan, uh, especially those who paid close attention to the Corner Kids in season four. Yeah, so as I said, I'm a public defender. Um, I've been doing this for almost a decade now. Um, the relationship between my job and the Wire is very, um, there's a, quite a lot of overlap, um, as you might imagine. Um, probably, probably that person that talks about the wire at parties. Um, and <laughs> That's me too. I'm that person. <laughs> if they haven't watched, they should. Um, and I'll probably badger them about that for quite some time. And I always like to say, you know, that what I'm telling you is objectively true because I'm 
because of what I do, I'm generally rabidly against the police um, and prisons and all those sorts of things. So if somebody like my, myself, that my favorite television show centers around the relationship between police and the drug trade, you know, probably you should take my advice and you should watch this show because you'll probably love it. So my relationship between my work and The Wire is there's just the Venn diagram. There's not much space in between those two circles. It's a lot of the stuff that I see on the screen is the stuff that replays, you know, over the course of my days, over years now. And uh, as, as dumb as lying about a traffic stop to claiming that a client of mine choked them when nothing, nothing of the sort absolutely happened and it was all captured on video, you know, there's just, there's a lot that goes, that those two things happen. And, and the fact that I could go to work, do that kind of job, come home and still watch The Wire, you know, just tells you just how good the show is. But life imitates art in a, in a way that uh, is, you know, both funny and um, not funny. And uh, season four in the corner kid, Chandra, she, uh, I believe that she's diagnosed with like oppositional defiant disorder and psychosis. Unfortunately, in my experience, I've had to represent people who have lots of mental health issues, mental health illness, um, including things like psychosis and oppositional defiant disorder. Um, I represented a woman who, you know, was struggling with her mental health issues. And, uh, you know, part of what I was trying to advocate for was that, you know, she was struggling in such a way that she wasn't able to comport herself to her behaviors in court. And, uh, she had called the judge repeatedly at a hearing at cheese face bitch as Chandra uh, called the teachers. And, uh, you know, I, I used this sort of term to get to as a sort of way to try to get the judge to understand that my client wasn't able to manifest appropriate courtroom behavior by her calling the judge this repeatedly at one hearing. Um, of course the court didn't care and, and they deemed her like, you know, able to proceed, but it's just one of many, uh, you know, in this particular instance, art imitating life situations. But the feel for me and the wire is so real because it is, because it it's the same sort of thing that is what I dealt with every day in and out for years. Um, the constant lying about ticky tack things, the lying about big things, right? If you're going to lie about something so small, you're clearly going to lie about something much bigger if you feel like you have to. Um, just the way that the interplay had, like, I remember I had a, I had a client who his relationship to the police and his community was horrifying that they follow him all the time. You know, he knows who they are. They know who he is. And the idea that like he would possess drugs in his car on his person while he's driving around, is just ludicrous. Yet he would be pulled over. They would claim they found drugs in his car. Um, the cases would always be dismissed. Nothing would ever happen. Um, but it's just this relationship that law enforcement has to the black community where I was uh, working in Florida. Um, it just it, it, it just reminds me very much of watching The Wire. And uh, the overlap between the two is uh, it's just it's so significant that, you know, you should hug your local public defender, of course, because they need it. Um, because it's just, you know, how awful the drug war is um, and just the, the punitive nature of it and the fact that it's unfortunately all these years later is still going. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about the vicious cycle last time I was on never ending. And for public defenders, from what I hear from my brother over the years is that it's this nonstop circle of art, imitating life, imitating art, imitating life, and just on and on. Well, and speaking of which, Craig, I know you've been watching We Own This City, uh, and, and you have as well. Career, his career sounds like every everything you see in that and it's not just baltimore sorry to interrupt but no no i i mean this is exactly what i mean like life imitating art like of course uh we own the city is uh, a true story but uh, craig i believe we talked about this last time like the way that it is just um depicting so much of what was represented in the wire but yeah even even to a, a more extreme degree in some sense and one thing, Brad, I noticed that when you were listing favorite characters, uh, you didn't mention any of the legal uh, figures um, who would be, of course, we see the state's attorney and then we see Levy, who is a criminal defense for hire. But we really don't see much in the way of public defenders 
a couple very short sequences where I think it's Bodie gets a public defender at his first hearing or something like that. But um, yeah, maybe that's uh, one part of the system that's underrepresented in the show. I want to jump in and, and say one for the public defenders before my brother does. So it just seems unbiased, even though I'm his brother. So it's not uh, <laughs> the the misnomer. And John Oliver did a great segment. He brought, you know, great cop actors like Sonia Sohn from The Wire was on this fake commercial they did about public defenders. And it, there's a great crappy movie called was it The Chase with Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson and Henry Rollins. And when they finally get Charlie Sheen at the end, they're talking about, if you can't afford a lawyer, we'll appoint you the dumbest motherfucker we can find who will escort you personally to jail, you know, and all this stuff. But the truth is the public defenders are usually the most sanguine, uh, pro-civil liberties, anti-law enforcement abuse, anti-law enforcement in general, oftentimes, you know, prison abolitionists to the best extent that it's feasible. Uh, So they're doggedly in that fight and on the front lines every day. And even in the wire, you hear the way uh, Perlman tells Nathan, uh, podunk lawyer in Denton, giving a a hard time about original jurisdiction, right? As if, and, you know, they may be public defenders. They don't choose their clients. They're not, you know, out there chasing ambulances and drug money, but they do what they do because they believe in what they're doing. Um, whether they know they're going to be running into concrete walls for their duration of their tenure as a public defender is, is another thing, but you know, they're, they're literally in it to win it for the defense, to stick it to the police, to stick it to the prosecutors. And it's definitely one of the great misrepresentations by, by Hollywood, by movies, by television. Um, but David Simon doesn't, he doesn't dump on public defenders, but there's definitely that moment that shows how people view public defenders when Perlman says it to Nathan about the podunk lawyer. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that I agree with a lot of that. Um, it's, it's very underrepresented or negatively represented. There's many times in my career, which I've been called the public pretender, or if, uh, if I did well, uh, somebody would tell me that, uh, they would thank me and say that they hope I become a real lawyer soon, uh, things like that. So it's uh, it's pervasive in the community. The people who represent you sometimes think that uh, you're not worthy of even speaking to. And obviously Hollywood and MTV and stuff hasn't really done a good job of that. My brother is right. The Wire doesn't really touch much on it. Um, uh, Levy is kind of like the man. But then again, you know, that's like major drug kingpins can afford very expensive lawyers. Um Obviously, I would recommend anybody hire the firm of Roy Black if you have money and are in trouble, of course. Um, but, you know, that's one guy. Um, Billy Murphy. Billy Murphy, obviously. Uh, if you can afford to hire him, you certainly should as well. Um, but uh, most most everybody I've worked with during my career has been totally committed, you know, to the cause of helping people and to, you know, police reform and criminal legal reform and just or, or don't like what the system is. And I, and I guess I would say I'm not really a big fan of Levy or the other lawyers is because I'm not really a fan of the criminal legal system to begin with. I don't find much like optimism in like the courts and those sorts of things. I think what the government is trying to do to my clients or everybody else my, is, is inappropriate. And I don't think they should be proceeding that way. So that's sort of where my motivation comes from. So it's probably why I'm not the biggest fan of Levy, who reminds me of like the uh, slick, smarmy criminal defense lawyers that I would see. Um, around. But what I would say, though, is my favorite scene in the show is definitely the court scene between Omar um, and Levy. That is uh, probably the the thing that I could watch over and over the most. Um, watching that is one of the things that gives me the most joy, um, just because it strips bare the, like, the way that the court system is held up on this pedestal, right? And, like, what goes on there is this, like, high-minded form of justice. But really... It's not, and uh, Omar's testimony just lays cut, lays it bare and cuts right through it that this system is what we all just make of it, right, and what we all want to choose to believe about it. And so I just love his back and forth with Levy. It is uh, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And just one of the penultimate moments. Oh, sorry, just one of the best penultimate moments in the show to climax with, I got the shotgun, 
you got the briefcase. It's all in the game, though, right? And judge and jury are all nodding, like, "What are you gonna? What are you? What are you gonna say back to that one?" <laughs> yeah, and just like you know, Levy looks horrified, but like as you say, Omar is perfectly summarizing uh, the truth, which is that sure they're operating in different parts of the game or different systems, but their motivations and uh, the players are pretty much the same. Yeah. Levy can dress himself up in a fancy suit and carry around the leather briefcase, but it's, they're all really involved in the same relationship. Uh, Levy's like Omar says, you know, he's, uh, he's sucking the, on the life of these people the same way that Omar is. Uh, it's, it's no real difference. And that's one of the things that I would say that I enjoy about being a public defender is I don't have to harass my clients for money or, uh, you know, tell them they have to pay me. Uh, whereas obviously if you're a private criminal defense lawyer, uh, that is certainly something at the top of your list. And, uh, you know, I, I'll go ahead and say this, uh, as, as coyly as possible, but I, I hear from public defenders that the line from McNulty in season one of the wire, when they're looking for Savino and they come out of Levy's office about everybody wants to stay friends and everybody wants to get paid and everybody wants to have a future that, you know, that is one of the biggest obstacles because the bureaucrats are trying to hold some imaginary chip to cash in with the prosecutor's office on some future day that they might throw sunshine on their ass. And that, of course, that did you're and you're waiting for moments that never arrive as to paraphrase Lester. Yeah. Well, and I think what The Wire shows is how much of it comes back from sort of a, a trail of, or maybe trail isn't the right word, but like the ripple effect of the devastation of the war on drugs. And that it, no, that's, and that's absolutely true. That's how Lester puts it. The, or I, I'm sorry, that's how Bunk puts it. All this, you don't think all this death ripples out. Um, and Lester talks about who gets paid and hurt behind all the tragedy. Um, and we see it, you know, we see it in the wire and we own this city, which just ended was phenomenal. John Bernthal, phenomenal. And seeing it zoomed in up close was, I think, in a way, more impactful in in the contemporary showcasing of what just happened to Freddie Gray behind what just happened to George Floyd and reminding everybody that this happened and what just happened shouldn't be forgotten. And none, I mean, none of this should be forgotten really at, at, at any, by any stretch. Well, and with so much of it still going on, uh, as both of you sort of alluded to earlier, um, None of it should be forgotten, and all of it is still sort of insidiously working beneath the surface, or at the top top of the surface in, in a lot of ways. We see the arrogance flouting the fact that they know they've been told they're under federal investigation. I mean, we talked about this previously with the re when the real DOJ investigation was going on. The intro song, or the 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 montage intro and, and the and the theme song, that press conference that was being held with, you know, fake, or the what the real Commissioner Valchek was based on and 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 Narice, but who Delaney ended up playing real uh, Commissioner Davis. We remember seeing that press conference live with Rosenstein in the background and just and we were just our our mouths were just wide open. We we're just like we're literally watching the wire, but like the real thing in real time right in front of us. And it was one of those, you know, life imitating art moments. And then, so seeing we own this city, I mean, I think we had to watch the opening twice in a row because it was just so like, you're just laughing the whole, like John Bernthal, holy shit. If he doesn't become one of the biggest stars after this, it's what a performance. I mean, and I, you know, you know, leave it to me to bring this up. Uh, Sopranos Wire Nexus, uh, one of the stars of 
The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel movie, as the iconic Johnny Boy Soprano, who was originally played by the late, great John Servano, a famous theater actor. So big shoes to fill, and he did not disappoint. And he definitely did not disappoint in We Own This City. Um, the face he puts on that whole the whole series is just, un, I mean, unbelievable. Um, the Happy Wayne Jenkins episode, Happy Wayne Jenkins Day episode is just, right? Anything to add about We Own This City? I mean, that show was, it probably hits too close to home for me. Um, but it was just very well done. It couldn't be more accurate. Uh, obviously, it's all true, of course. Uh, John Barenthal is amazing. But that speech that he gives in the opening scene where he says, if we walk into court and we speak and testify in a certain way, we win. That is true. That is 100% true. If I'm in court and a cop says he smelled marijuana emanating from my client's car, that basically is a freebie for them. And they know that. And so it's tough to watch a little bit, but it's, it's tough to know that there were civil, that there were, that there were, civil rights investigators from the Justice Department standing next to these Baltimore cops while they discussed with each other how to manufacture probable cause. I've seen that in body-worn videos of cops that I've been dealing with in my own cases, so it's not like something I haven't seen before, but when you're standing in front of a civil rights uh, investigator from the Department of Justice, you would think that maybe your instinct would be to maybe not lie in front of them, but this is what I'm saying from earlier, right? They're so... Law enforcement in this country and all over is so conditioned to lie, but not only to lie, but to have their lies believed to taken as gospel and to then be reproduced in the media without any criticism whatsoever. I think a lot of the things that people don't like about season five um, of the wire of the whole newsroom story where it does, where the whole fake news thing is now sort of come back and people are like rewatching it and saying, Oh, Hey, fake news. But for me, it's more watch the relationship between the police reporters and the cops, right? McNulty tells them a bunch of stuff. They just publish it all in the newspaper. They didn't question him about it. No cr- constructive criticism, nothing about whether any of this is true. The editors? Nothing. The edit- Right. The editors don't do anything. They just take what the cops give them and just put it into the newspaper. Yeah. It's like, oh, the police said it. Okay. So, you know, take it as gospel. And so absolutely what you're saying about manufacturing probable cause and um the being conditioned to lie we have a serious tragedy right now in uvalde texas and the police have been changing their story and lying every other hour it seems like sorry just wanted to throw that in as well yeah it's um timely for sure but it, it also makes me think of when presbo cold cocks the kid and then there's the discussion with daniels like who cold cocked the kid and why? And Presbo says, he pissed me off. Says, no, he didn't no. piss you off. He was threatening your life and you didn't use your service weapon. You used your baton and like feeds him the lie essentially. And I think the, the, takeaway, the takeaway from that scene is, um, okay, well, if you haven't come up with something yet, we'll come up with something together. And as long as you come up with something, like get your story straight for IID basically. Yeah. It, we yeah. own this city does a really good job of, um, of stripping away, you know, the pretense of, of all that when they try to sort of punk um, Wayne Jenkins and try to pretend like he's going to get maybe fired or like suspended or an ID investigation. They say they're just messing with him, right? Cause he brings in the money. Um, it's an institutional thing. Of course, the law enforcement officers, the profession has been protecting its own for decades and this, and that's why somebody like Daniels, right? Law degree, black guy, the last person that you would think would manufacture something or, you know, lie in a report is coaching them about how to lie to IID, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's just ingrained within the institution. And I think that, uh, Dominic Lombardozzi's uh, part in We Own the City lays it out about as good as it can be playing the union head. When um, they, when when the the woman from the civil rights division asked, like, is there anything, anything that somebody could do that you would think deserves to be treated with, um, a, a, like they would lose their job? And his response is, 
we're a labor organization. We protect our members. That's the problem right there, right? That the law enforcement is not to protect and serve, quote unquote. Essentially, it's just a labor racket for their own, for their own. Well, to protect and serve their own. Right. Yeah, I think it's McNulty who says, I wonder what it would take to get fired from this police department. Exactly. Yeah. As somebody who's researched that before, um, it's very difficult uh, to get fired from a police department. But but Kima calls it and says, keep up with some of your shit and you just might find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember researching law enforcement contracts um, back when I was in law school for, for this project that I was working on when I was in Washington, D.C. And like, it's, I mean, you have to have noticed that there's an investigation um, they get the opportunity to be heard. Maybe there's an arbitration hearing. Then there's an appeal of the arbitration hearing. Then you can go to a trial board. But like, even if all that happens, maybe they'll give you suspended. You'll be suspended with pay for a week or something like that. The, the, the penalties for whatever it is that may happen are just so small. And officers know this. and They don't really have any concern. I used to depose cops in Florida. And because of a certain law, like, people's uh, law enforcement, like uh, internal affairs records are essentially like available to you to look at. And you would ask a police officer if they wanted to tell you up front, if they had any sustained internal affairs complaints and they would say no, or they can't remember. And so then I would just pull out the file and just drop it and be like, so do you want to tell me if you have any sustained internal affairs complaints? They'd be like, oh yeah, I've got like six. Um, so like just the instinct to lie, to deceive, it's just ingrained within the institution, no matter how new, no matter how long you've been there, black, white. It's just an institutional problem that, as far as I can tell, is not going anywhere anytime soon. And, and there's also a systemic narrative issue that, that you both touched on um, and we talked about last time, where I, like, I liken it to the Civil War, where we're just told in black and white, good guys, good, bad guys, bad. And, and they, what they don't tell you about is that Lincoln would have made any deal to keep the union together, even if it meant keeping the slave states. He was also considering deporting all the slaves to Nicaragua, I believe. Um, so it's always there's always gray matter. Right. And the, and the way in which um, he waged some of the war by burning down people's homes and things who weren't slave masters and such, you know, so there's always there's obviously you know the the union ended up fighting and defeating slavery which is good but it, it there's all it's you know we talk about daniels being a good guy but look at the baggage that comes with him so we look at how we want to teach this narrative of history that's very clean to you know to, to make us feel good about we did like even in world war ii we won world war ii we say and then we sweep the whole internment camps under the rug thing. Absolutely, so, yeah. So always, yeah. So there's always this tether to the narrative that gets in the way, also, like, like not, uh, like, or like trusting, trust the cops in court, right? That Brad mentioned. There's just this recurring narratives that are systemic that get in the way of reform and change. Yeah. Well. Okay. So I have two comments. First, on the uh, sustained or unsustained. Um, investigations makes me think about when this is in that same scene when uh daniels meets them in the the um low rises i think it's low rises after the cold cocking the kid and says you know for her this is going to make in you know four brutality charges in the last two years and her goes unsustained and daniel goes but all of them true yeah you know and then as far as whether things are good guys bad guys black or white i think that is one of the most important points of the wire is that it is a lot of gray and um you know just to lead us into the anniversary the this is the week of the 20th anniversary of the wire which means there's a lot of takes online on so on twitter there's a lot of articles cropping up with um interpretations of the wire and its legacy and what it means and I've seen a few uh, articles and tweets that are seem to really misread what The Wire is about and distill it into like bad cops or good cops or we need more good cops or we you know need fewer bad cops. And it's just, I don't think it's as simple as that. Yeah, and I, 
I agree. I think everybody is in this strange habit of trying to be too profound for profound sake and too zoomed in without realizing that it's all right there in front of you. They, they went through the trouble of doing this show uh, and doing it about as perfectly as a show can be done for specific reasons. And it's all there. I mean, all the pieces matter. And you hear, again, Lester talk about all of us, the whole thing is wrong. And we're all part of it. None of us are, you know, we talked about last time, the problem with purity tests is we all end up failing them. We're all invested. We're all complicit, you know. I'm sure this iPhone was made in a factory, not here, you know, and somewhere where, you know, labor is probably valued way less and treated uh, with less dignity. Let's just be mild about it. Um, where else do I? Where else do I get this phone? Right. You know? Yeah, we all are participating in uh, interconnected systems that do harm to some, do good for others. Yeah, yeah, I can work from my phone and all this great stuff, but what's the tragedy behind this phone, you know, right. that, they're, that they're not, we, we know there might be some, probably, what's our, what are our other options presented to us? And there are people who are either operating in harmful systems who have good intentions, uh, some of the police fall under that category, and then there are people doing bad in scare quotes there bad things but for the right reasons like you know frank sabaka trying to salvage the livelihoods of the stevedores so i mean i think when people try to categorize anything in the wire as wholly good or wholly bad they're probably not understanding the wire or they need to watch it again that one of the things that becomes abundantly clear, and we talked about this last time, especially with, you know, the penultimate scene with Jimmy McNulty's wake at the end is how necessary talented natural police criminal investigators are. The rest of it, a lot of it is just window dressing, a waste, uh, it's a make work program. It's a, it's a budget buster. It's a war on citizens of your own city um, an occupying force in many ways however you need real criminal investigators to look into robbery homicide repeat violent offenders major crimes etc and all things that that encompass but like daniel says at the end of the wire what is it what good does it do to have more cops riding past just so you can say you're tough on crime and that you're showing the flag, but does it actually make a dent? No, it just makes your stats look good. Yeah. Dope uh, on the table. Exactly. And that's part of that narrative is we need the dope on the table. We have to talk about how we're taking down the kingpin and doing our job. So the mayor doesn't fire us <laughs> and you hear Davis talk about it. And as Brad you know, mentioned earlier, you see how systemic it is. Davis is dealing with a deputy chief who, Jenkins is on a nickname basis with you know, hey DC in the first in the first or second episode, I believe, and and you also see when he's a colonel in a flashback and he's real chummy with the rank and file. So he's he's a cop's cop basically who's made rank and he's up there right underneath Davis during that whole kerfuffle, let's call it. <laughs> um, and and it really shows how this kind of holding the line, let's call it, you know, that thin blue line is rewarded when they're operating basically a continued criminal conspiracy. Um, and that's what they used to get, you know, mobsters, the RICO statutes, the racketeering and corrupt organization statutes. So, you know, we talked last time about they don't consider Baltimore organized crime, even though the Barksdale gang was deep and organized and Prop Joe's mob was, but you know, they didn't have last names that ended in a vowel, but we see how organized they were in the wire. We see how organized the cops are in their crooked endeavors in We Own This City. Yeah. Um, I think it's McNulty when he's, you know, pushing to get the Barksdale organization investigated. Some, I think he says something like they're organized and they're smart. They have respect for the people they're chasing the same way that 
the task force that brought down the five families and and especially the Gambino family when Gotti was boss. I mean, they respected, especially uh, someone who ended up turning uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. You know, they really respected how tight and deep they ran their organization. It was Gotti's kind of need for public attention and adoration and, you know, running his mouth all the time that got them caught on wiretaps and was implicating Sammy in tons of murders that, as Bodie, gave Sammy nowhere to turn. Um, And one of the first mob books we ever read was Underboss, which is Sammy's autobiography. He was a true gangster. He made a list in prison of people he had to kill in order to get on with the life he ended up flushing it down the toilet because it was undo. It was too many people. You have to kill John Gotti, John Gotti's sons, John Gotti's brothers, their kids. Like, I mean, he was a real gangster. And, you know, bottom line is it, it was Gotti's big mouth that brought the whole thing down. Just like Lester says, he was proud to be chasing those Barksdales. Marlowe, you know, might have a lot of heart and a lot of muscle and a lot of West Side real estate, but was a babe in the woods when it came to this being organized thing, keeping his mouth shut on the phone. So, you, you see how there is organized mobs and, and functionally disorganized mobs. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm wondering, well, since we just uh, talked about the 20th anniversary, this is a huge, huge year for The Wire. This uh, is a huge week, uh, of course, for the anniversary. It's, first of all, um, I've so enjoyed seeing so many familiar faces from The Wire in We Own This City, uh, which, as you said, Craig, just um, finale was this week. So that was awesome. And uh, I-, I was impressed just to see the versatility of all of these actors who are playing, in most cases, very different characters from who they portrayed in The Wire. Um, and uh, a lot of them have been super active on social media about the show, but also about the anniversary and Craig and Brad, I know you, you've both been super busy. So uh, tell us what you have been doing and what you plan on doing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, two things I want to do real quick. The cameos were great. Um, two, two favorites, one Anwar Glover, tall man, slim Charles appearing in, I think episode one and uh, getting harassed by Hersel and says, uh, what do you want me to do? The, turn the car off and wait a minute at the stop. <laughs> um, and also just uh, personally uh, just, you know, kind of have a crush on, I forget uh, the, the actress who plays Donette in the wire who shows up in the strip club that um, double D the bail, the bail bondsman guy buys for Wayne Jenkins. Um, so still looking gorgeous, uh, great cameo. She's hilarious um, in those roles. Um, great to see her back in it, but you know, everybody that showed up, um, amazing, uh, Brad. Did you have any favorite? Uh, re- you said Dom was your favorite, right? Nikki Zero. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, Dominic Lombardozzi's little go as the union uh, guy, but also one of my favorites was uh, the guy who plays Wardell in The Wire was like on the mayor's staff, uh, giving it uh, to the police commissioner. Uh, I could that voice. I was like, oh, I recognize that voice. Uh, that was really good, uh, and also. Uh, Savino, uh, Savino was no, in it. That wasn't. There was oh, no. Uh, the guy, no, it was the dealer who 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 um, Wallace cops from that Poot sees. Right. Yes. Originally, yeah. we thought it was Savino, but then Ziggy's duck uh, got it connected, and then I, I I Ziggy's duck verified what my brother just said. Uh, Mr. Wardell did not blow the box. Was it was the hairline? He's older. He's 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 put on a few pounds, but it's the hairline and the voice, and it's just. You know, it, it comes to life in your head, and uh, we got the nice work detective, a hell of a catch detective, Jeff from Ziggy's Duck uh, on it today. So I gave, and I gave my brother yeah. the assist as well, of course, because it's well deserved. Shout like out Duck. But, we uh, love Ziggy's Duck. Uh, he's um, sharing so much good stuff. Anyone who doesn't follow Ziggy's Duck should. Absolutely. Uh, but he also, you Craig, others have um, caught a lot of the familiar faces that I didn't notice. So thank you for doing that. Uh, it's really cool to see uh, some of the, um, yeah. well, like some of the smaller characters from The Wire uh, back working with David Simon and the rest of the, the crew. Absolutely. And, and so to, to answer the question more directly, uh, you know, Psych is basically working in the convergence of these emerging markets where psychedelics, cannabis, uh, 
holistic lifestyle, uh, you know, natural plant medicines, therapeutics, etc., wellness, mindfulness, um, all converge. So as such, we will be exhibiting at MJ BizCon in Las Vegas, and that's November 15th through the 18th. And we're going to be hosting a unofficial launch party at the Brooklyn Bowl in Las Vegas. And uh, the stars of the event are none other than Putin Bodhi themselves, Trey Chaney and J.D. Williams. We're hoping to have some other other cast members come out and hang. I've heard rumors of one Chris Clanton, a.k.a. Savino. Um, don't know if it's true, but we'll have more details emerging soon. Uh, we're really excited about it. Trey's been uh, amazing. And um, his, his, uh, his big song and video drops tomorrow. I've heard it. I'm sure you might have heard the preview by now. It is tremendous. Um, and all I can say, if you haven't seen it yet, um, in the words of Bodhi, uh, strong colors, black, red, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, for people yeah. listening, uh, it will have already dropped. So go go check that out for sure. There's, there you go. Um, it's it's a great song. Our- and if you're in Vegas, you'll hear it live. It's uh, it's a general admission show. You know, it's it's for the people. Um, we hope you'll come out and check it out. And uh, it's going to be part of the uh, Wired for Life tour that we're looking to uh, hopefully package and put together um, through Psych and with Trey's uh, Trey's uh, slew of companies. He's a he's a hell of a, a multitasker. You know, rap artist, actor, entrepreneur. Uh, really impressed with the work that he's been doing. And um, you know, we uh, we've been discussing a lot of things. I can't get into too much more right now. But we're really wow. excited. We're really excited about this event in Las Vegas. And um, I'm excited too. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be in Vegas. Yeah. As I say, you, you know, we've already, you know, we, as, as you know, we've already invited you as a, you know, VIP guest. We'd love for you all to, to cover it there, um, interact with everybody. And, um, I can't, I can't wait. I mean, this is, it's good business, but it's also just a, a real kind of geek out moment for me. And it's, it's, uh, it's still surreal, but, um, you know, Trey's been a, he's a real, you know, real down to earth guy. And um, it's just, it's been a really, it's been a treat uh, working with him so far. Yeah. Um, Trey, you, everyone listening, you heard his voice at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, we've so enjoyed interacting with him. And, and as you said, Craig, uh, really motivated hard worker with many projects on the go and and everything he's been working on is so cool to see uh we watched the documentary that he released um and that's a really fascinating look at sort of behind the scenes story of his uh journey to the wire and and beyond um and uh brad you're uh involved as well and uh, we'll see you at mj biscon uh yeah i'm involved uh with the advisory board for now, I do some drug policy and legal advising. Um, uh, the other day, British Columbia, uh, the government of British Columbia has decided to decriminalize possession and use of small amounts of drugs, which is, of course, a great thing, which is, of course, uh, positive. 20 years later after the wire, right, there's been some positive movements forward, marijuana legalization. Um, so... Uh, hope those good things uh, keep going forward. I will certainly be there. So if anybody wants to ask me anything about the practice of law, feel free. <laughs> well, this is great because um, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, uh, one of the biggest takeaways from The Wire um, and in, in some ways we own the city is how devastating the war on drugs was like for many, many individuals and communities and how it's continuing to have a ripple effect from those who were incarcerated due to the war on drugs and how that limited their ability to um, sort of have agency within society, whether it be from limiting their right to vote or, or other restrictions. So that message of the wire intersects so well with what you're both doing, what you're working on. And uh, I think this is a, a great 
time uh, over the next few weeks and leading up to MJ BizCon to have these conversations. And, um, you know, The Wire already changed my life from the first moment I'm, I watched it. But I think uh, as we talk about these things, we can make even more changes or, or at least sort of spark these kinds of uh, discussions. Yeah, um, there's... There has been some change. It's been slow, of course. Obviously, those of us who've seen The Wire understand these issues at play would like the change to happen a lot sooner rather than later, but there is change nonetheless, and slow and slow and steady is better than none at all. So uh, we gotta just keep you know, fighting so that things can get better. And I totally agree, the drug war is a complete tragedy. Um, it has just destroyed uh, generation of people and, and their lives and their families. And I think that, you know, a hundred years from now, when we look back at society now, we'll look at the drug war as the same level of an abhorrence as how we saw slavery um, and those sorts of things. And I think that, uh, you know, well, I guess the last thing I'd point out is, you know, the, the takes about the wire 20 years later, trying to distill it down to good cop, bad cop, um, you know, this culture, bad, that culture, good it's really missing the forest or the, it's just completely missing what's going on. Right. The wire isn't about one thing or two things or three things. It's the wire is essentially a cultural understanding of America. And uh, it's maybe like a, it's like a diagnosis of what's uh, gone wrong um, for many, many years. And so rather than say it's about good cops or about bad cops, it's about an entire cultural system that's existed for, for years and many years before the wire, after the wire, and it'll continue to go on. Sharing a dark corner of the American experiment. It's very, great, very well great said. Line. But, you know, there's also been some, uh, just some good life changing moments in a very um, jovial way, for instance. And this goes kind of back to the Sopranos wire nexus. Uh, we like to name pets after gangsters. Um, a little bit of Sopranos, a little bit of Goodfellas. Our uh, cats are uh, Big Puss and, and Kitty two times, respectively, twin brothers, uh, soon to be three years old. And uh, Big Puss has organically earned the nickname Mr. Nugget from Dee's speech about, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb. Uh, and also uh, Fuzzy Dunlop, um, because he likes to uh, flop on the couch like a Fuzzy Dunlop and just roll around. And uh, two times is the more energetic, uh, kind of uh, skittish and crazy one. So, hey, McNutty, our mainest man. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the wire lives on in, in our hearts for that. And, you know, I think that what's great about the show is that there's so much humility um, in so many of these iconic actors. And I want to point out a couple of them. Um, there's more than I can mention, but Brad already mentioned Dominic Lombardozzi. I mean, he's just one of our favorite actors in general. He's in so many great movies. He's in so many great shows, more than we've even seen. But, you know, he, he's incredibly humble on Twitter when people point out things like his role in The Irishman, uh, the scenes he did with De Niro and Pesci. Uh, and, you know, I just, I'll never you know, let him forget this. He's right where he belongs from the very start of his career uh, as Nikki Zero in a Bronx tale. Grew up in the Bronx. I mean, it just sounds like that was practically his real nickname growing up. It's too true to check out, according to Zorzi. Um, and he started out with De Niro and Chaz Palminteri, etc. And full circle, he's in a Scorsese movie playing Fat Tony Salerno aside De Niro and Pesci and He's right where he belongs. So, you know, it's no, it's not a mistake. It's no accident. And in a Bronx tale, he, his mom said never amount to nothing. But, but uh, you know, she was wrong about that. Um, and as Dom says, right about many other things. But, um, you know, humble as he is, he's he's one of the greatest of all time. You know, it's, it's not too early to say it. Um, and then you've got someone else like Jamie Hector. Um, you know, I, I said this earlier today on Twitter. I, I've been incredibly impressed with not just his acting on a screen, but off screen, he's had uh, Moving Mountains, I believe is the name of his nonprofit that 
works on democratizing music and art and getting more resources into the hands of those who might not be able to afford it, poor marginalized communities. And you know, there's no reason that people shouldn't have access uh, to instruments and to the means to learn um, and explore uh, their creative abilities instead of, you know, maybe they don't, maybe they don't feel like they have it athletically or it doesn't interest them um, or whatever else activities are available. Um, and he just did a big interview in the wall street journal. And I think that there's a lot that can be said for his uh, giving back to the community and engaging in direct action and, you know, being a, a former kind of full-time musician myself for a while, it, it's, it's, it's great to see and it's, it's inspiring. And I, I hope that I could, you know, one day be in a position to, you know, do things like that. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to give a, a couple of shout outs there. Well, and while we're mentioning all of the tremendous talent from the wire that we saw again in we own the city, um, such a tragedy that we lost Michael K. Williams, um, who was one of the greatest talents in the show. And, uh, Perhaps we would have seen his face again in We Own the City uh, were it not for that loss. Um, but Brad, I think you mentioned earlier that the courtroom scene will always be remembered as one of the greatest uh, and funniest and truest um, moments in the whole show. Yeah, I mean, obviously a major tragedy. Uh, Michael Kenneth Williams, just a tremendous, tremendous actor. Um, steals the steals the scene and everything he's ever been in um but yeah it, uh, that that scene it'll, it'll have a lot more meaning for me the next time i see it because uh, i haven't watched the wire in quite some time waiting for the old 20th anniversary to come around so i know when i see that i might might get choked up a little bit or might hit me a little bit differently but yeah definitely looking forward to rewatch and especially watching that scene because it's just uh, like you said it's just true it's funny and uh, Michael, Michael just owns it so much. He's just, just absolutely the center of the center attention star of the scene. Every day is a great day to rewatch The Wire, but tomorrow, or for our listeners, it would be today, uh, today especially. So we encourage everyone to to watch the show again. Um, every time we we rewatch yeah. it, many many times, there's always something new to gain from it. Absolutely. And we just, so for the record, we have successfully starved ourselves this entire year. This is going to be our first binge of 2022 and whew, thank, we're, we're grateful for we own this city. Let's just put it that way because it's been rough, but we're, we've made it. Um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a hell of a binge. Uh, the Tom Waits tune is so iconic. Uh, I got to admit to not being the biggest fan of the cover versions, except for season one. But I think it's still cool that it was covered. Um, it, it doesn't have to be my way or the highway. I just, I wish I could hear, the original is in season two, by the way, for everyone listening. Um, I wish I could hear that every season. Um, it's such a great song, such a great, you know, his voice is so iconic. Um, so yeah, I, uh, that's my favorite um, theme song credit entrance. That's why I don't fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you both rewatch the show, keep a pen and paper close by. Maybe take some notes. We'd love to have both of you back uh, and hear some of your um, perspectives and maybe some new things that you caught and just uh, your reflections watching it again, um, celebrating this 20th anniversary. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just a kind of final message out there to everybody listening and who's been watching the show over these past couple decades and watching we own this city to really understand, you know, especially as someone who's working at a, a company in, in media, digital media specifically, just to understand the, the diligence and brilliance of David Simon and crew, Ed Burns, George Pelicanos, William F. Sorzy. I mean, these cats have, extracted so much information through their sources through doing the job the right way obviously 
season five showcases a lot of horrible practices in journalism. We see the David Simon character and his cohorts show up in the, you know, persons of Gus Haynes and Roger Twig and well, and Zorzi himself is there (laughs) in the wire, but, you know, just really inspiring to see that kind of journalism being done, that kind of commitment to the unvarnished truth. Um, And it's almost like in the wire where Lester doesn't care who gets the subpoenas or who it hurts. Um, It's just, you know, in pursuit of following the money in in his situation in David Simon's um, situation, they're just following reality and, and trying to give a glimpse because we know that it's more than just Baltimore, but Baltimore is a glimpse of that dark corner of the American experiment. Yep. As we learned from the first scene, this America, man. Got to. <laughs> Got to. Uh, well, I think that's a great spot to leave off. And uh, thank you both so much for being here. Uh, we will link your uh, your website, your social accounts in our show notes for anyone who wants to follow um, you've been sharing some awesome stuff, uh, related to the wire. We own the city. So, uh, we encourage everyone to follow Craig and Brad and, uh, we'll post those accounts in our notes. Absolutely. And, uh, thanks to, yeah. Thanks to, um, the Clay Davis, uh, bobblehead. Thanks to Isaiah Whitlock for making them. I highly recommend buying one. It, uh, it keeps me sane. Um, get all the shit you want anytime you want. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't think there's anything I'd rather do more than talk about the wire. So um, I'd love to be back anytime. Uh, meanwhile, I'll probably go start watching. Yeah, well, you couldn't. Have, I couldn't have said it better myself. Nothing I'd rather do than talk about the wire. So thank you, and thanks for everyone listening. Uh, we'll see you all next time. Way down in the hole. <laughs>